You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. As usual, before we begin this episode, I would like to play two promos from my pod friends. These are two podcasts that I personally listen to as well. The first one will be from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast with your host, Paul, and the second one will be the True Crime Fan Club podcast with your host, Lainey. Hello all, I'm Paul, creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been a crime buff for many years now, and my enthusiasm has led its way here. If you fancy each week delving into some obscure, but in-depth and often disturbing true crime tales from the shores of the UK, plus you don't mind the northern accents and the down-to-earth manner, then why not come have a nosy? The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So it'd be great if you guys could come have a look-see and I hope you can subscribe today. I'd love you to join me and I look forward to seeing you there too. See if you can become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my show is for you. I'll peel back the curtain and give you a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. Check out the episode Broken Bonds and listen to a brother reveal a deeply held secret. Or hear about the day that the heavy metal community will never forget in the episode Dimebag. These episodes are just a sample of our catalog, so you have plenty to binge. Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast and any podcatcher. You won't want to miss an episode. Since you're here listening to me talk, I will go ahead and assume you're both a true crime enthusiast and a fan of true crime. So if you have not yet listened to these two podcasts, please make sure you go and check them out. Now, let's begin this week's episode. Japan is an island nation located in East Asia. Geographically speaking, it is right off the eastern coast of the main Asian continent, right by South Korea, China, and Russia. Japan is made up of about 6,800 islands, divided into 8 regions and 47 prefectures. The four largest islands are Honshu, Hokkaido, Kyushu, and Shikoku. These four islands already make up about 97% of the entire country. Japan's population as of recent is around 130 million. Size-wise, it is about 142,000 square miles, around the size of California. Japan speaks Japanese, and the written language consists of hiragana, and katakana, which are monosyllabic and similar to the concept of alphabets. Hiragana is generally used for Japanese words, 
while katakana is used for foreign words. Another form of writing is known as kanji, which is basically Chinese characters adopted into their language. This type of writing is more abstract and can have multiple meanings and pronunciations. Sounds complicated, I know. The first written mention of Japan was found in Chinese history texts, the Book of Han, but the country itself has been home to some people since the Upper Paleolithic Age, roughly dated from 10 to 50,000 years ago. Japan went through several centuries of governance by a centralized government controlled by the emperor. Modern day Kyoto was the capital city during the Heian period, which is from around the year 794 to around 1200. This era was thought to be the golden age of Japanese culture. During the next few centuries, the power shifted from the emperor to the samurai warriors and the shoguns. Or also known as the military dictators. All the way up till the 17th century, Japan lived in isolation from all the other nations and the influences of the world. It was finally pressured to open up to American fleets in the 1850s. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Japan was quite victorious in several wars, including the first Sino Japanese War against China. The Russo Japanese War, and to some extent, World War I. If you recall many previous episodes, Japan had control of so many Asian territories around this time. It all came to an end though when the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, finally ending World War II, forcing Japan to surrender and draw back. Since then, Japan has officially renounced its right to declare war, but it still has its own military force and has the eighth largest military budget. Said budget is used for defense purposes only, though. Moving on to modern Japan, it is an extremely modern country with high living standards. Japan nowadays is most famous for its technology, cuisine, history, art, animation, and so much more. Japan has the second highest life expectancy rate from birth, but it also has one of the lowest birth rates in the world. That's a whole other topic I will save for some other time. So, what do you think of when I mention Japan? Sushi? Anime? Honda and Toyota? Geishas? I'm sure tons of ideas come to mind. But what if I asked you, what is the worst Japanese murder case you've ever heard of? I initially wasn't planning on doing an episode on this case because I kind of feel like it's one of the most well known Japanese cases, and a few other podcasts have already covered it. But one of my Facebook group members suggested it, and of course, I don't like to say no and disappoint people. If you haven't guessed it yet, This is the murder and torture of Furuta Junko, a high schooler. If you remember the Hello Kitty murder and if you are familiar with the Sylvia Likens case, well, this is pretty much the nature of this case. Thank you, Andre, for suggesting it, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing your name right or wrong, but I think you'll know it's you. As usual, the episode will most definitely consist of violent and graphic details. So please proceed with caution. Actually, this is probably the most disturbing episode I've had to research so far. 
so many details. Here is part one of the 44 days of torture. Furuta Junko, born on November 22, 1971, was just a normal 17-year-old high schooler. She lived in Misato City, located in the Saitama Prefecture, roughly about 30 minutes driving distance from Tokyo. She was an obedient child. She lived with her parents and her two brothers. She studied hard, looked forward to attending university and working in the future, and rarely did anything that would be deemed as inappropriate. She did not smoke or drink, and was looked up to by her peers. Not only was she smart and kind, she was also quite good-looking. She had a trusting nature and a kindness in her that would unfortunately lead to her torture and death. Japan's crime rate is generally very low, making this case a million times more shocking and appalling. The series of horrid events started in the evening of November 25, 1988. Junko had a part-time job, and she had just finished her shift and was heading home on her bike. At the same time, four teenage boys were riding their motorbikes around the same area, looking to rob people and possibly finding a young female to rape. Unfortunately, these two worlds collided, and the four teens spotted Junko riding her bike. The leader of the four boys was an 18-year-old teen named Miyano Hiroshi. Hiroshi was said to have been linked to the Japanese Yakuza, which, to put it simply, is basically the Japanese Mafia. Hiroshi instructed one of his friends, 16-year-old Minato Shinji, to ride his motorbike close to Junko and give her a kick. He did as he was told. He came up right up next to Junko and kicked her right around her waist. She lost her balance and fell into the gutter by the side of the street. Shinji rode off on his motorbike as Hiroshi's turn came up. He rode up next to Junko, helped her up, and asked if she was okay. He told her that he was just threatened by that same guy with a knife, and it was probably very dangerous for her to be out alone at night. He pretended to be this kind-hearted teen, and Junko, being slightly naive and vulnerable, put her trust in him. As she started to go with him, he immediately changed his demeanor and began threatening her. He told her that he was actually friends with this guy who kicked her off her bike, and that they belonged to the Yakuza. If she wanted to live, she would have to listen to him and go with him to a love hotel to have sex with him. Junko probably was too frazzled and scared, so she complied. At around 10 p.m. that night, they headed over to a love hotel together where Hiroshi proceeded to rape her. After Hiroshi finished his business, he called up his partner in crime, Shinji, the guy who kicked Junko over. Not on a cell phone, mind you. It was 1988. He called Shinji's house and two other teens were there as well, 18-year-old Ogura Jo and 17-year-old Watanabe Yasushi. Hiroshi told his friends that he had just snatched a girl and had sex with her. His friends responded with, Don't let her get away. The four of them and Junko met up shortly after, and Hiroshi told them 
his made-up story about how they were all from the Yakuza, so they better not ruin the plan. They discussed about what to do with Junko, and that's when Joe suggested that they should keep her hostage in Shinji's house, their usual hangout spot. Okay, if you're really intent on understanding everything and remembering everything from this case, you might want to keep track of who is who. Hiroshi is the ringleader, and Shinji is the guy who kicked Junko over, and most of the torture will take place at Shinji's house. The other two guys are just accomplices, and they are equally guilty, of course. They took poor Junko to Shinji's house and kept her in a room on the second floor. She would be staying in this place for the next 44 days, or rather, until the day she died. Junko was kept locked in a room, and the four teens would take turns keeping watch. You know what's the craziest thing about this whole captivity thing? Shinji's parents and older brother also lived in that house. More on that later, though. Three days after her capture, on the 28th of November, two other teens visited the house along with the original four teens. Hiroshi was one twisted sick sack of shit. The others were just as shitty, of course, but being the ringleader obviously means more responsibility and more criticism. So he's definitely the worst one of all. Hiroshi wanted his friends to take turns raping Junko because he thought it would be fun. I can think of a million other things that are real fun. Video games. Eating good food. Watching a movie. Playing pool. Freaking karaoke. But Hiroshi being Hiroshi passed around drugs, possibly ecstasy to his pals, and ordered Junko and his boys to strip naked. Then they started taking turns raping Junko. Hiroshi also took out a razor, shaved her private parts, and began inserting matches into her vagina. Apparently burning a girl's private parts with matches is a form of entertainment for them. Junko met Shinji's mother for the very first time on November 30th. I have no idea how weird and unnatural this entire encounter must have been. Shinji's mother saw Junko and told Shinji to let the girl go home. They apparently even sat down together for meals. Shinji's family most definitely knew the nature of this so-called relationship, and by relationship, I mean keeping this girl in their house against her will. The teens initially tried to make it look like Junko was the girlfriend of one of the teens, but it must have been obvious that that was not the case. Can you imagine how miserable she must have felt, pretending to be one of their girlfriends? Shinji's mother once told Junko directly to just go on home, but obviously words did nothing. Honestly though, the mother had no say in this situation. In reality, Shinji's parents were scared of their son and his friends. They have heard of their ties with the Yakuza, so they tried to keep out of their way. This is appalling and very disturbing and unacceptable. As a child or even a teen, we look up to adults many times for help or to lead us on the right path. Can you imagine being Junko and expecting help from an adult? A mother, but instead of getting help, you're disregarded. By this time, one would assume that Junko's parents 
are worried sick looking for her. Don't get me wrong, they were. But the teens wanted to avoid any drama with the police, so they forced Junko to call her parents every few days to tell them that she was safe and that she had just run away from home, having a great time partying and hanging out with friends. I honestly don't know if her parents even bought this explanation and if they really ended up calling off the police. Remember I said Junko was almost the perfect child? This would be 100% out of character. I would expect her parents to think something is wrong instead of nodding along and believing that their daughter is a different person now. It doesn't specify her parents' reaction, but either way, even if the police were still searching for her, she was never found alive. Around early December, Junko tried to make an escape while her captors were busy napping. She snuck downstairs and called the police on the telephone, but as she was making the call, Hiroshi woke up and snatched the phone away from her and hung up. The police called back and he answered it, apologizing, saying, oh, it was just a prank call from a child. Of course, any attempt to disobey the captors resulted in extra torture for Junko. She received even more beatings, got burned with lighters, and was force-fed all sorts of alcohol. Remember in the Hello Kitty murder case, Fan Man Yi was made to laugh as her captors tortured her. In a similar fashion, Junko was made to sing along with her captors as they beat her. A song called Seiyan which was a song from a popular Japanese drama. On December 5th, there was a train crash in Tokyo and it was all over the news. Hiroshi decided to taunt Junko and told her that her father was on that train and that he was dead. He asked her how she was feeling and she responded by saying that she was very upset. Then Hiroshi, like a fucking five-year-old, says, Oh, I was just kidding. Then Hiroshi, Jo, and Shinji began to chant dead or alive, dead or alive over and over again, causing emotional stress to Junko. She tried to plead with her captors to let her go, but at this point, everyone knew it was too late for that. Having her go home would be too big of a risk for her captors. We all know how this sort of situation ends. As for the rest of December, Junko was repeatedly abused in all the usual ways and more. She was beaten every day. She had blood clots in her nose cavities, causing it hard for her to breathe. Her internal organs became so damaged, she was unable to eat or drink. As soon as she tried to ingest anything, she would instead end up vomiting, causing more malnutrition and dehydration, a vicious cycle. Her hands and feet were pretty much useless at this point as they were badly burned and she suffered from broken and crushed bones. She eventually was unable to go to the bathroom properly due to all the abuse to her private parts. She begged her captors many times to just kill her, but of course, these fucktards were not interested in taking orders from her. They don't want to kill their punching bag, their torture toy. What would be the fun in that? On January 4, 1989, Junko received her final torture. I'm so mad that this had to happen to her, but like Sylvia Likens and Fan Man Yi, she was not getting rescued and at this point, death would be the ultimate comfort. 
Hiroshi and his pals had spent the previous night playing Mahjong, which is a tile-based game that began in the Qing Dynasty in China, probably around the 17th century. Think of it as a game of Eastern poker or a type of card game. So Hiroshi had been losing all night, and as someone with the emotional capacity of trash, he was pissed off and wanted to take it out on Junko. He and his pals arrived at Shinji's house and started beating Junko. At this point, it was pretty obvious that if they continued beating her, her death would be just a matter of time. But they just couldn't resist. Couldn't help themselves. They saw that she was starting to bleed profusely from all of her wounds, so these geniuses decided to wear plastic bags on their hands and continued punching her so they didn't get any blood on their hands. I know, unfucking believable Hiroshi took it one step further by beating her with an iron ball that weighed about 1.74 kilograms, roughly around 3.8 pounds. He kept bringing it up above his head and slamming it down on her stomach. His torture session started at around 8 a.m. and finally finished around 10 a.m. The four teens left and did not realize that this would be the last time they'd see her alive. It was said that she died later that night, finally freed from this torture she had to go through, a kind of torture that no one should ever have to go through. The four guys did not find out she was dead till days after when Shinji's brother called, telling them that there was something wrong with the girl. Indeed, there was something wrong. She was dead. Hiroshi borrowed a truck and some cement from his previous place of employment. They mixed the cement, put the body in the steel drum, and poured the cement inside the drum. They sealed the drum with a lid and used tape to keep it sealed. They drove the truck to a garbage dump site located in an area called Wakasu and dumped it there. But wait, before dumping the metal drum, Hiroshi did something. There was a very popular Japanese drama called Tombo airing before Junko was kidnapped. The day of her kidnapping was supposed to be the finale of the show. She never got to see the ending. Hiroshi got a copy of it on VHS and threw it into the dump site along with the drum. If you think he did this out of pity or as a way to make it up to her, well, nope. He did this because he didn't want her to haunt him after her death. Seriously. Before we continue, let's take a second to list out all the awful and torturous acts that the four teens did to Junko. Junko was kept naked most of the time to humiliate her. She was raped on a daily basis and not just by the four captors. It was said that they invited other friends and Yakuza members over to rape her. She was estimated to have been raped around 400 to 500 times. She was forced to masturbate in front of her rapists in order to entertain them and to turn them on. She had a lot of items such as bottles, iron bars, etc. forced into her vagina and her anus. She had limited food and water, drank her own urine, and was forced to eat live cockroaches. One of her nipples had been ripped off with pliers. 
She was forced to sleep in the balcony where it was winter and it was freezing. One time, she had a lit light bulb inserted into her vagina and it stayed there until it exploded inside her. There's more though, but you get the idea. Okay, this concludes part one of Furuta Junko's case. Part two will be out next week, so until then, please stay safe. Psychos are everywhere, and psychos look like any one of us. I'm going to finish this episode with a segment of the song that Junko was forced to sing along with her captors. The words gambare is very commonly used in Japanese, and it is roughly translated to hang in there or do your best. Junko was said to have repeated those words to herself constantly because what else was she supposed to do but to hang in there? みんな寂しいマラソンランナー声を枯らしてあなたの背中に僕は千円送ります